0: You know, I'm pleased to say that I think that the energy of this room matches the energy that left it. (laughs) I enjoy worshiping with you. The the people up front do a wonderful job at at leading us to worship Christ together. And so I am grateful that we can continue now through worship and the Word. Please take your Bible and turn with me. To the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7, as we pick up on where we left off last week during our study. If you're using the blue uh, Bible that's located in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 796. Yes, I hear that. Don't worry. Seven hundred ninety-six. Now we, we we covered the first half of Zechariah last week, and I'm going to kind of pick up where I left off. But there are some recurring themes, and without reading the rest of the book to you, I think one place in which we can kind of capture, in summary fashion, the entire book of Zechariah is chapter eight, verses one through eight. So. I, Uh, Read that with me. I'll read out loud, and please follow along in your own copy of God's Word. And the word of the Lord of the hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the fateful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. If you're anything like me, you're going to want to spell this correctly, so listen carefully. I'll only spell it once. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, eschatology. That's the major theme of the second half of the book of Zechariah. It could sound like a big, intimidating, theological kind of a word. We don't use it very often. I mean, it's five syllables after all but it does speak to a reality that we all are aware of, at least in some way, shape, or form, and that is the end, the end. Eschatology is the study of the eschaton, which comes from the Greek word of the same name, meaning end or finish or finale, consummation. So, when we talk about Eschatology, we're talking about the study, the logic of what will happen at the end of time. And scriptures speak to this thoroughly. It is a regular theme throughout the entire Bible. And what we have here in the book of Zechariah, some have even called it the eschatology of the Old Testament. It is filled with it. But as you you even consider us thinking about this particular doctrine, this particular topic this morning, what's your general attitude toward such a study? How do you feel about us diving into some level of eschatological depth this morning? I think some of you in here, I've talked to you, I, I know you, you're captivated by the topic. You love it. I preached in the Book of Revelation earlier during the summer, and people were like, "That should be the next sermon series. We need, we need another like." five six months worth of the book of revelation and every time i hit a prophetical kind of passage and the the 12 people are like oh we we need more of that you just glibbed right over that thing i I want some charts and i want some details and we need an eschatology class and i love people who love eschatology to that degree there there are some who are indeed captivated and again you know who you are there's some in here this morning that i think are genuinely confused you uh, don't know a thing other than the fact that it all ends somehow, and, and Jesus is going to be the one that finishes it. Some people will say they're premillennial, and others will say they're postmillennial. Some will say they're amillennial, but there are many who say, I'm pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end, <laughs> But indeed, there are some who are confused and maybe even scared by the fact that it all does end. It sounds rather ominous. You read the Tim LaHaye books and you just think, man, I don't want any piece of that. And so there's this kind of scariness to the end and people aren't ready for it. And so naturally they're confused. And then there is this uh, third group who I would call uh, the cautious, the cautious. These are are the the well-meaning Christians among us who think that we can't be too definitive about anything related to the end because it's just a little too confusing and it's a little too cantankerous. Why would we be so sure and so specific about stuff that people have argued about uh, for over two millennia now? I mean, is it even really worth talking about? I mean, And I appreciate the sentiment here. I'm not making fun of it at all like, look, we just need to keep the focus on Jesus and not get uh, derailed by uh, all of our charts and, and outlines. We just need to keep preaching the gospel. And, and so, they just kind of stay away from the topic altogether. And of these uh, approaches, I would offer Zacharias. Zechariah doesn't come to us captivated by the topic, although there is plenty of eschatology indeed in the book. He's certainly not confused. He seems really clear about what he wants to say, Uh, but nor is he cautious. He he doesn't mind delving into the details. Zechariah views eschatology as something that is constructive. Constructive, that's his view. You would remember that uh, in this book up to this point, people have been working together to rebuild the temple. We saw it in Haggai. We saw it in the first half of Zechariah. He is writing this because he knows that they're growing weary of this task that that God has given them. They've moved into the area with very few resources. They've had opposition coming their way. They're trying to rebuild the temple to the glory of God. It is a physical building that should manifest His presence to the world, and they are struggling not only with the logistics of a building program, I think many of you can resonate with that if you've ever done home construction, but they're also dealing with the hardness of their own hearts. You know what? They still feel this tendency to kind of like uh, make life all about themselves and not about Yahweh. So they're dealing with the logistics of life and they're also dealing with the lawlessness in their own heart. And Zechariah is encouraging them in both. He says, hey, keep rebuilding the temple and keep repenting and turning toward the Lord and relying upon him alone. And I want to help you do that. Here's how I'm going to do it. I like that we're going to have this authoritative ring all through the message on eschatology. Just make it like part of the tone. You'll remember this day. He says, I want to encourage you as you continue to rebuild, as you continue to repent, as you continue to battle, to rely upon the Lord, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you five visions. I'm going to give you a few exhortations, and then I'm going to close out by giving you two revelations or oracles. That's the structure of the book. Last week, we only had time to cover Isaiah's five visions in which he actually is showing these things that he saw in a dream shown to him by the angel of the Lord, and every one of those things encouraged the people in their present building of the temple. What we didn't have time to cover is what happens in chapters 7 through 8, which is more exhortation. He kind of breaks off from the visions for a moment, and he makes this like uh, appeal to the people. You keep building. uh, You keep trusting the Lord. You could see it here, even in your own copy of God's Word. Uh, Notice uh, chapter seven. uh, He starts actually by answering this question from a contention of people in the first few verses, who ask them if they should keep fasting. And then he says basically to them, hey, don't worry about your fasting. I think that you were fasting all about yourselves. You made this whole pity party about the exile, about how, things, how bad things were for you. Instead, what you should focus on, look at verse 9, is true judgments, showing kindness, showing mercy to one another, not oppressing the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner and the poor. Basically, he exhorts them. He says, hey, you just stick to the things that really matter. Among the things that matter, though, is God's kingdom actually coming into existence? And so in chapter 8, he encourages them with uh, this, this future uh, picture of what will happen when all the people will, will come back to Jerusalem and worship there. That's what we read a few minutes ago. But then notice what he encourages them to do in verse 9, more exhortation. He says, let your hands be strong. This is chapter 8, verse 9. Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing the words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day the foundation of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. He's acknowledging how hard it is. But notice down in uh, verse 13, he says, Hey, things have been bad for you but they will get better. You will be a blessing. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. What he's telling them is, hey, keep rebuilding the temple. Keep relying on the Lord. Keep repenting of sin. Hang in there. And here's what's going to happen. Here's how he's going to conclude. This is the conclusion, conclusion of Zechariah's message. You can do this because God will make it all work out in the end through his chosen ruler. Basically, he's going to say, you can keep Doing what you've been called to do, no matter how hard it is, in light of the fact that some good things are going to happen through God's chosen ruler. And so, note this. This is like a little bit of a class. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord. All right, notice that phrase. And now flip over to chapter 12. Look at the same phrase the oracle of the word of the Lord. The way that he concludes the book is by giving them two oracles. Uh, we don't use that word very often. I think some of us who are sports fans would think of oracle arena. Uh, but outside of that, we may not even know what the word means, I would just basically uh, modernize it for you in what you would think of as the book of Revelation, a, a revelation of the future. It is revealing something that you otherwise would not have known. So here's how he encourages them. He says, I'm going to give you two oracles. I'm going to give you two uh, revelations, and they're, they're both going to give you hope through Christ's in time kingdom. Uh, the first one you find in chapters 9 through 11, we're going to study these uh, back to back, and and you could write it this way. Here's the first oracle, Christ, the rejected ruler, will reign. Christ, the rejected ruler, will reign. That's chapters 9 through 11. The second oracle that he gives them to give them hope, to keep building, to keep relying on him, to keep loving one another, is in chapters 12 through 14, and it could simply be titled Christ the received rescuer will reign. So the first oracle is about Christ, the rejected ruler. The second oracle is about Christ, the received rescuer. And they both say similar things, he will reign. He will reign. Your, your work is not in vain because he will ultimately finish what you started Uh, He will bring it to fruition. He will bring it to its expected end. And so what we need to do, friends, in the next few moments is actually find hope in these oracles and these revelations uh, ourselves for the work that God has given us to do in our own time. And admittedly, it's going to be tough. I mean, I, I could totally understand why some people would want to slow down. I don't think I've ever been more challenged in my life studying a few chapters of Scripture than what I've been doing over this past week in chapters 9 through 14. Uh, I had hours upon hours. Right now, I have about 40 minutes. So, we're just not going to be able to hit everything, but I'll do my best. I want you to get an overview of of the argument, if you will, and you can always dive into details with your favorite study Bible later. So, let's look at this first one the first oracle or revelation. Christ, the rejected ruler, will reign. Uh, in chapters 9 and 10, you have the Christ will reign part. The chapter 11 is this odd parenthesis that says he's going to be rejected. So, if you want to go ahead and, and mark that macro structure in your mind, you're going to like understand these passages a lot better. So he paints this picture of Christ coming to rule. If you look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, I will not read all these. He's basically saying that God's going to come and he's going to eliminate all the traditional enemies of Israel. He's going to clean house. Look at verse 8 in particular. He says, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, talking about the temple, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, For now I see with my own eyes. God is saying, I will come, I will reside, I will be security for my people by keeping watch in my temple on this planet. But notice verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Amen. That's what they want, the king to come. But notice how he's coming, righteous and having salvation to see. Yes, amen. But here's the surprise, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, friends, if, if you were reading this through normal ancient Near Eastern eyes, uh, what animal would you expect a, a, a king who will come and dominate a city to be riding into? Uh, it's a horse, <laughs> some kind of a brilliant steed. And yet, this one in the prophecy says, no, he's actually going to come into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey at that, a baby one, <laughs> a small one. I don't know of any way that you could look uh, masculine and victorious on a donkey. And I think that's the point. And yet this was the very passage that we read in Matthew chapter 21. In fact, this is one of the few instances that's repeated in all four of the gospel accounts. This was critical for their understanding of Christ coming as the Messiah. They knew, as countercultural as it would have been, that their king would have come on a donkey of all things, and indeed he did. And the crazy thing about it is, and this messes us up so often when we're reading Old Testament prophecy, is that there are aspects of this which have been completely fulfilled, and there are other things which await fulfillment. And the scriptures that I'm looking at don't actually say, hey, you need to be ready. Some of this is going to be separated by a long distance, a long span of time. The analogy that often gets used, and I don't think it's a bad one, is for those who have actually driven somewhere where there are mountains, which is obviously not anywhere here. I met a kid the other day, by the way, from Florida. He had never seen a hill, (laughs) much less a mountain. I said, you've never been to Tampa? He's like, no, I've lived in South Florida my whole life. I'm like, you poor thing. (laughs) So he doesn't know what I'm about to say. Uh, He can't resonate with this, but the rest of us can and when you do see mountains in the distance, you can't often tell, like, what's, what's the big one, what's the small one, how much space there is in between. Especially out in, like, Arizona, if you've ever been out there, because it's just, it's, it's just flat, like here. And then all of a sudden, you see this huge, uh, like, collage of mountains in the distance, and you don't realize that what is actually, what looks like one lump is a whole range. Uh, we, we lack some perspective, now the thing that often gets communicated with this analogy is that Christ's first coming was like a little mountain, and his second coming is like a big mountain. I hate that analogy. Because it's like, oh well, what he did on the cross was not that big a deal, but the real thing that he's going to do is coming later. Friends, I would like to think of it as two really big mountains, and you can't tell where the one starts and the other stops. What what Jesus did at first when he came on that foal of a donkey? and would come into Jerusalem as the king and be crucified on behalf of his people, that is a big mountain. That is a huge deal. But what would happen was a huge span of time that we would not be aware of. How long it would take place, we don't know. In which he would also come again, and he will eliminate all the enemies. Notice what happens between verses 9 and verse 10. Verse 9 says that he comes riding on the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 says... I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Notice that. I will come and I will dominate the world. Now, Jesus came and he established rule. But if you have like watched the news ever in your life, You understand that he hasn't established that type of rule yet. So there's a real sense in which he came to do what he needed to do in the hearts of his people. But he is still coming again to do something greater. And he wanted his people to understand that even though he's going to come in an unexpected way, he will get the job done. He will set up his rule and his reign overall. That's what chapter 9 is all about. Chapter 10 repeats it in a similar way. You get more of this beautiful poetry where in the first verse of chapter 10, he calls them to, to rely on the Lord alone and, and not to rely on the household gods and uh, the empty visionaries of the day. He says in verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. He's talking about these other leaders who have come up to establish themselves over Judah and Jerusalem He says, I'm going to punish those guys, for the Lord of hosts cares for the flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. And listen to this this is awesome. From him, from Yahweh, shall come the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg, the thing that makes the tent stay up. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together, everyone who rules under this coming one shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. This is awesome. We're talking about a total domination. And he's saying, look, you're going to build this temple, and this will be the place where Yahweh will reside, and it will actually get stuff done. It will be a base of operations for him to rule the world, through which he will rule the world. I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures from the War of 1812 in which uh, the White House was actually burned to the ground. You, you keep, there's even movies now. There was one that came out a few years ago, never saw it, but I just remember the theme because it's shocking to me. It was called Olympus Has Fallen. And it was this idea that, that the White House had been taken over. And, I, you know, you just think about what happened even a year ago and you're just disgusted by the fact that, that people would invade upon some of the institutions that are actually foundational to our culture and our society and our country. And you can just imagine like the patriotism welling up and you're like, what are you doing? This is supposed to be the place of rule. This is supposed to be the place of order. That's exactly how they felt, and they wanted to know that that place that they were building would indeed one day house Yahweh, who would rule over the world in a real and tangible way. And so the prophecies are saying, hey, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to send His chosen one. He's going to restore His people. And we see that over and over again in the book of Zechariah. Uh, certainly that means that some will, will be included who otherwise would not have been, but also his chosen people will eventually be saved. Romans 9 through 11 speaks to this more graphically. And then notice verses eleven, uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 3, there's more prophecy that the enemies of God will be defeated. Now it's at this point that you're looking at this and you're like, all right, this is uh, this is great, great. We're, we're really excited. This is what's on the horizon. The, 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 co- the chosen ruler is going to come. He's, he's going to rule. He's going to dominate. But then something unexpected happens in the book of Zechariah. He closes out this first oracle in a way that nobody would expect. And it is weird. He says, Zechariah, I want you to dress up as a shepherd. And I want you to take the normal staff of a shepherd the implements the tools that a shepherd would use. And I want you basically, and I don't fully understand this myself, I want you to act out uh, basically a play in which you are going to give a sign prophecy. Now, sometimes prophecies came through word. Sometimes prophecies would be, would be acted out, almost like a game of charades. He <laughs> says, I want you to act this out to people, and I want them to understand what's going to happen. So he tells Zechariah in 11.4 all the way through 14 to dress up as this shepherd and to basically establish himself as a ruler over the people of the day. And Zechariah is, is doing this, and he tries to like be a leader for them. And then ultimately, because of his priestly background, they accept him as a leader. Uh, they, they say, okay, we're going to let you lead us. And then they reject him. They're like, you know what? We don't like your leadership style. You stink at this. And he says, okay, well, why don't you just go ahead and pay me what I'm due? And you know how they pay him? They pay him with 30 shekels of silver. And then Yahweh tells Zechariah, why don't you take the 30 shekels and I want you to throw it back in the temple? To the house of the potter. The, the potters were close to the temple residences because so many pots were used for sacrifices. He says, just throw the whole mess back at him, and I want you to walk away. And you know what this is going to symbolize? My people who will reject me as their ruler. And indeed, you read through the gospel accounts. The people, God's people, Israel, they would reject him They would buy him, I mean, Judas, on behalf of the people, 30 shekels, that's what he's worth. Take it. And then Matthew will pick up on that as as a type of something that would come later. And he says, it's basically, this is is a a parable of the people. Judas represents the people who who have turned on the chosen Christ. And then you look at verses 15 through 17 in chapter 11. He says, do it again. Look at verse 15. He says, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Now, I don't know what the equipment of a foolish shepherd is, but you think, take up the equipment of a shepherd who is not going to do a good job, and that would be a broken staff and a broken rod, which he mentioned earlier. And some uh, commentators have even suggested that he took up butchering equipment, which is something that you would never think that a shepherd would do. And this is what's going to happen with him. For behold, I am raising up in the land eventually a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. This is a graphic picture. And then he gives this pronouncement, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. Uh, Friends, God is actually saying that, you know what I will do? In response to their rejection of me, I will raise up one who will shepherd them in such a way that they will be decimated. Some people interpret this rather allegorically and just say, notice how the Jewish people have been treated over the last 2,000 years. Some people uh, suggest that this is actually speaking to the Antichrist of Daniel's 70th week who will one day come and actually oppress the Jewish people in a way that they've never known before. But either way, the point of the text is clear. You can actually have hope, and here's the strange thing, because your ruler's going to come, and he's going to rule over you, and he's going to bring you all back, and he's going to establish peace in this world in a way that's never happened before, even though there will be a time in which you will reject him. This is crazy accurate. I mean, it it will blow your mind. Friends, what, what you should understand in this is that unbelief and ungodly rulers are all part of God's plan to see Christ as the ultimate hero. Why would God providentially allow his people, his chosen people, Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, to reject him for so long? Why are there so few Jewish converts in this day? There are some, thank the Lord. But why is it that it seems that mostly those Gentiles are the ones who kind of make up this uh, allegiance to Christ and not Jewish people as a whole? It's because God is writing this story in a way that they would eventually learn to treasure Christ as the true rescuer, ruler, and hero. Let me ask you a question. Why would any author ever write a conflict into a story? I, could, I mean, you can ask me the question on behalf of the text, well, why would God let bad things happen to his people? Why would he, why would he let them reject him? Why would he let them endure his, his wrath? Why would he let them uh, suffer in these particular ways? Well, let me ask you, why does anyone at any time who's writing anything ever write a plot conflict? Have you ever read a story without one? It wasn't worth reading. Plot conflicts are introduced to put the hero in a good light. God has authored this story in such a way that we would all be able to see the beauty and the goodness and the strength and the sufficiency of his chosen ruler. They will indeed reject him, but not fully and finally. And friends, I just want to pause here and have you understand something. Uh, The dreadful things that happen in our lives and in this culture are still under the sovereign hand of God and are ultimately working themselves out to His appointed ends. And I say this in two areas in particular, for those who seem to be evil rulers and for those who seem to be Christ rejectors. The way that Christians get in a tizzy every time their political candidate isn't in office blows my stinking mind. God has been doing his best work through the most wicked individuals for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden we think, because the wrong guy is in office from our perspective, that God's plan can't move forward anymore. Chill. He's been doing this a long time. I say that it not only applies to rebellious leaders, but it also applies to Christ rejectors. Some of you can't imagine why your friends, why your family, why your loved ones would not be in Christ right now. And friends, I don't know how to answer the question, but I do know that God is the author of the story, and He is sovereign over the heart. Sometimes you can keep yourself up awake at night thinking, did I say it right? Did I do it right? How did I mess this thing up? What am I going to do next time? And at the end of the day, you're just going to have to trust that God is sovereign over the heart. He's sovereign over those who reject, and He's sovereign over those who receive. You can have two kids grow up in the same gospel preaching home and, and get the same treatment. And yet one rejects and the other receives. But, friends, I don't want to just leave you on that fatalistic end. I want to give you hope that though Christ is sovereign over the rebellious heart, he is also sovereign enough to make it receptive. Which brings us to the second oracle. The first oracle is you guys can have hope because Christ, the rejected ruler, will reign, chapters 9 through 11. Here's the second oracle or revelation. Christ, and notice this, the received rescuer will reign. Now, in the first oracle, he is characterized as a ruler who is rejected. In the second oracle, he is characterized as a rescuer who is ultimately received by those who rejected him. I'm not kidding, they correspond. This is is awesome. Chapter 12 is the beginning of the oracle, and it starts off this way. uh, I wish I had a marker board I would draw on it. All right, let's pretend we got a marker board here. We're going to do some good old-fashioned uh, Hebrew antithetical parallelism. You like that word? just means the way that they like to structure things is different than the way that we like to structure things. We like neat little outlines, point one, two, three. They like stuff to look pretty. So here's how it goes down. You have in the first section, uh, verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, this uh, victory, uh, this, yeah, this victory over the nations, all right, you can call it that, a victory over the nations. Then in the next few verses, which according to my notes are verses 10 through chapter 12, 10 through 13, 1, are unexpected repentance. So you've got an attack that the people overcome, you've got unexpected repentance, and then you've got another section that is unexpected renewal. And then you've got a final section that could be over here, and it is on this attack again. So you've got attack on the outside and right in the middle. Here's the cool thing. Right in the middle of the thought is this repentance that comes from seemingly out of nowhere. All right, just hang with me. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. We have a description of what many people call the battle of Armageddon. I don't care what you call it. It is a battle on the final day when Jesus returns to make all things right in this world. And what he communicates in this particular battle is that there will indeed be a a, a true like battling of good versus evil, something that is real, something that, that you can see with your own eyes. And it says, ultimately, God's chosen deliverer will deliver his people. But the weird thing that we're thinking, though, in light of this is how is he going to deliver his chosen people if they've rejected him? Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It continues in verses 11 through 14 to describe how the Davidic house will mourn over the one that they have pierced, and the Levitical house, the priest, will mourn over the one that they have pierced. And then notice what it says in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You know what the text is saying? They will eventually receive their rejected ruler because God will make it possible. I don't know how else to interpret it. He says, I will pour out on the house of David. Who's that? That's his people. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Listen to this. They can't even plea for mercy unless he gives them a spirit that will enable them to do so. And they will be so broken that they will look on him who they have pierced. Now, here is a mind-blowing reality for those of us who want to be more accurate about who Jesus is. Notice it says, as one mourns, excuse me, when they look on me, who's speaking? Yahweh. So it uses first person, and then it says, on him they have pierced, third person. Yahweh is identifying himself with one and the same of the one who was pierced. Friends, this is the same uh, passage that the Apostle John will actually quote in chapter 19, verses 34 to 37, to say that, look, this is the prophecy. This is exactly what would happen. There will come a time in which the chosen ruler would be pierced, and they will eventually look to him for salvation and so receive these blessings that have otherwise been basically, delayed on their behalf. And so there's this unexpected repentance. And I want to make something extremely clear, friends, that the beautiful thing about uh, the entire Bible, and not just the book of Zechariah, is that we understand that anyone, anyone who actually receives this kind of cleansing has looked on the one who was pierced. That is how they find that holiness. It is something that God enables, and how do we know that they are actually one of the ones who will receive his benefits? Because they are relying on the pierced one. They are relying on the one who was sacrificed on their behalf. Now, here's what's really amazing. I'm looking again across the spectrum of people that are here this morning, and I'm thinking, wow, there's not very much uh, Jewish blood in the room. I know there's some, but not much. That being the case... God and His grace, this is one of the great surprises of the New Testament, has already included some people on this capacity to look on the pierced one, and that represents you without even knowing it. You didn't even get it. The New Testament calls it a mystery, something that you never could have otherwise seen. You have already been included in that special group of people who would normally resist the Messiah, but now you've received him because God and his grace has worked in your heart in such a way that Christ is more precious to you than your sin. That is beautiful. And for those for whom that is true in this room today, it says in chapter 13, verse 1, that there is a fountain opened to you that there is a cleansing from sin. It is thorough. It is, it is exhaustive. Look at chapters 2 through 6. I won't read it all, but what he's saying is they'll be so pure that when they look on this one who's pierced, that they will be cleansed from all uncleanness, and they won't even want to look or listen to false prophets anymore. Uh, ultimately, what it's saying, uh, this is a description, of they'll just hate false prophecy. They'll hate other authorities. They'll hate revelation from any other source. Uh, they won't want anything to do with it whatsoever. This cleansing will be thorough. It will change them at the heart level. And so also, those who have looked upon Christ have been purged of the power and passion for sin Friends, I want you to understand something. If you have looked upon Jesus as your ruler, as your rescuer, it will inevitably lead to holiness. Robert Trail, quoted in J.C. Rowe's book on holiness, explains it this way. O sirs, and I would add ma'ams, do not deceive your own souls. Holiness is of absolute necessity. It is not absolutely necessary that you should be great or rich in the world, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. It is not absolutely necessary that you should enjoy health, strength, friends, liberty, life, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. A man may see the Lord without worldly prosperity, but he can never see the Lord except he be holy. And how do we become holy? By the renewing of our minds and hearts through God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit by looking upon the one that Christ, that God himself has pierced. But friends, to look upon Jesus, the one who was pierced for you, places you in a new category. You were declared holy before God because your sins have already been paid for. But listen to this. You have also been designated as holy by the Spirit because you are now able to obey Him in a way that you were otherwise not able to do. And there comes a time when Christ returns and He finishes what He started in which even the possibility of sin is fully and finally eradicated and you will be holy forever to the Lord. For some of you, that's a rather appealing thing. For some of you, it sounds rather disgusting and appalling. And that would define the difference between the one who has looked upon Jesus as the pierced Messiah and the one who is still looking to themselves. God's people have a passion for holiness. And because of this wholesale change from the inside, he can now rule and reign over the world. And so, here's how this thing ends. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 9 predict that this shepherd that God has chosen, this pierced Messiah would be struck, the sheep would be scattered. This would be quoted in the New Testament, Uh, but a few people of God's people would eventually turn to him. Another reminder of what we see in Romans chapter 11. But notice chapter 14, here's how the whole thing ends. There's a day coming Uh, When there's this climactic battle again, remember that there was a battle that was described for us at the beginning. I gave you that little outline. Here's why I did it. Because in chapter 12, at the beginning, you have this ultimate climactic battle. And here in chapter 14, at the end, you have this ultimate climactic battle. And basically, it says that that God will dominate. This is that famous passage that speaks of Christ coming onto the Mount of Olives, and it's splitting in half, and Him actually ruling and reigning over the entire world. And there are some tough things in these particular passages. But what I want you to understand is that all who come to enjoy His saving, rule, and reign are the same ones who have looked upon Him for cleansing and forgiveness. There is no enjoyment of his political reign without first an embracing of his personal reign. There is no enjoyment of his political reign apart from an embracing of his personal reign. Remember, that's why I said that the two mountains aren't of different sizes. The first thing that God needed to do was to ransom our rebellious hearts, was to fix the sin problem. And then he comes to rule and reign over that. See, friends, if you just get too enamored uh, with the political and the eschatological and the timetables and you forget about the redemptive, it's hollow, it's empty, and you want a historical case to prove it, just read the history of the Crusades. It's a nightmare. embarrassment that those particular events put on the name of Christianity for all of history will never be able to outlive it. Where people thought that they were actually going to take over Jerusalem and bring in the kingdom of God, ultimately uh, being conquered by Muslims. There was never, ever, an intention for there to be a political reign apart from a personal redemption. And that's what Zechariah 12 through 14 is all about. But I want you to understand, friends, that it gives you hope. It should give you hope. This should encourage you. The political, it's going to come because we've already experienced it to some degree in the personal. So I'm so excited to see a Christian in heaven baptized today. And I love the fact that they're, they're old enough to understand what they're doing. They're making a public profession of their faith in Christ. The gospel was clear. But the elders of this church and the people who are here have also seen clear evidence of conversion in their life. Perfect. I seriously doubt it. You can ask their parents or their siblings. <laughs> but different? Absolutely. Absolutely. What that baptism professed is that something has already happened on the inside that will eventually be enjoyed on the outside. The personal precedes the political. And the prophecy is telling you, if you look on Jesus, the pierced one, you will be cleansed. So that gives hope. There's hope from both angles. Christ, the rejected ruler, will reign, and Christ, the received ruler, will reign. Friends, what does this have to do with the trials of the day, the things that we face? How how do we translate this into hope in our own lives? None of us, I don't think, are rebuilding a temple anywhere, (laughs) but we do struggle to love one another in the ways described in chapter 7 and 8. And we do know what it is to labor and long for the kingdom of God uh, to be made evident through the conversion of more and more. And we know what it's like to be frustrated with with few people seemingly coming into the kingdom of God. And and we pray for more spiritual fruit and we pray for more success. And we, like uh, the original listeners, are also struggling with our own personal holiness. I mean, (laughs) good thing. Good thing that the prayer of confession today was broad enough to kind of cover everybody. But could you imagine if you had to pray your own prayer of confession out loud from this week? We have our own wrestlings. We have our own strugglings. And in the middle of these very things, these oracles are for your assistance. They're for your hope. Hey, Christ is doing something. He will come, he will reign. Despite those who reject him, he gets the job done. He is even ruling over that. And even those who reject him, Christ will come and rule and reign and he can overcome their hearts just like he overcame ours. And things are well. I'm normally um, hesitant uh, to mention personal details of life, but I think it's sometimes helpful to, for you to understand um, that the guy that stands up front uh, is dealing with stuff too. I told the uh, the elders last night, I just found out that my, um, that my grandfather passed away yesterday, which is something that happens, of course, and we all, or many, have, have experienced that. And without going into the, the details of it, um, I would just say that uh, my involvement uh, in the the funeral and my ministry to family is, uh, at best, complex. It's just going to be, and I think many of you know, complicated family situations. And I'm trying to think, all right, Lord, um, help me. Uh, help me understand how Zechariah 7 through 14 is going to help me for what um, you are, are calling me to do on Thursday with family. And the only thing that, that I can figure in light of this is that, uh, you know what, uh, of these family members who still need Jesus, Christ reigns. And though some of them reject Him in very creative ways, he can rule over them. Uh, and though this seems like a distraction to the things that I thought I needed to do this week, he's authoring this story and he's bringing it about to its perfect end. Like there's this, there's this confidence, even in the daily stuff of life where you're just like, I know this thing ends well because of Jesus. Friends, that is, is what the book of Zechariah is about. It anchors our hope in Christ, not just the contingencies of the eschatological calendar. One commentator put it this way. I think it's beautiful. Christ is on every, in every chapter that we've looked at, even today. I'm reading here. He says, Zechariah tells us that the hope of all the prophets is fulfilled in the coming and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the most Christ centered of all the Old Testament books. And in every chapter of our study today, we've encountered him. Chapter 7 and 8 proclaim his day of feasting that puts an end to fasts. In chapter 9, he comes as the gentle king, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. In chapter 10, he is the cornerstone and the peg from which hang the hopes of Judah. In chapter 11, sets forth the good shepherd rejected by the flock. In chapter 12, he is the pierced one to whom his people look and mourn for sin. Chapter 13 tells of the fountain that springs forth from him to cleanse those who mourn from sin and impurity. And now at the end of Christ's work in chapter 14, so fully chronicled by this great prophet who sums up all the rest, at the end of a history that is centered on Christ and finds its end in his glory, our Savior is established without question, without denial, without opposition, as Lord of all. He is the reigning King who is not only worthy, but who actually receives the homage of the entire subdued creation. This is the message of the whole Bible, and it's, it finds its fulfillment in Christ's glorious reign. Friends, the personal and spiritual realities of Christ enable the political and physical realities of His kingdom. And so, we are encouraged to find once more our hope in Christ in the end that He Himself orchestrates. It's hope through Christ for His coming kingdom. And so, let us end where we began. What does eschatology have to do with us I would like to briefly give some pastoral advice. I will tone it back to that. I will not say commands. I will say advice to those of different eschatological orientations within the room. First, I'd like to speak to those of you who are captivated. My prayer for you, sincerely, is that you would be more captivated with Christ in the calendar. It is so easy, friends, to get into the weeds of Daniel's 70th week and what the millennium is going to look like and and who the Antichrist is and what's going on in Russia or the the Pope or whatever and, and totally ignore the point that Jesus is coming to reign, and we in the meantime need to be turning people to his glorious reign. I've been in studies that could literally last 12 weeks long where people spend four to five hours a week and they haven't shared the gospel with anybody. If the details of the eschatological calendar provoke you to more evangelism and more faithfulness, please keep it up. But if they are distracting you from it, you may be doing your eschatology wrong. The eschaton, the end, is about Jesus bringing it to an end. And the hope comes through Christ. For those who are confused, you say, I don't have a clue about any of this stuff. I just showed up and you just spelled the word eschatology for me to start off this sermon, and I don't know <laughs> like how I'm going to apply this. Look, here's what you need to know. It is coming to an end, and those who reject Christ will forever suffer in hell apart from him, and those who receive Christ will enjoy his glorious reign. This king who came was pierced for you, your sin demanded a price. He paid it. He exhausted the wrath of God as he bled and died on a cross, and he did it for all who would repent of their sin and rely upon him alone. He was, he was buried, showing that he was dead. I mean, this thing was paid, and he rose again literally from the grave to show that all who believe in him will suffer the same fate. <laughs> They, too, will rise. They, too, will live. They, too, will enjoy victory and power for life forever under his rule. And you sit here week after week, or maybe it's even your first time, and you have yet to receive Jesus. What is holding you back? You need know nothing else about the book of Zechariah than the fact that you should look on the one who was pierced and do it today. Finally, there's the, the group who's just kind of conflicted. Uh, you're like, I don't want to, to get into too many details. I don't know how comfortable I feel about finding out more about what it means that the Jews might get saved in the end or that there's going to be a, a real reign of Christ on this earth. Uh, friends, don't fear the details. I, I would actually encourage you to dive in a little more because details help define the clarity that we all long for. I don't know how many of you have like ever planned a Disney vacation and said, I don't really care what we do. I just know it's a park and we're going there. Now, what happens, you, you pick out where you're going to stay, you want to know how close it is to the hotel, you want to know what the transportation options are, I mean, you start planning out the rides, you buy the fast pass thing, I mean, like, people, like, they plan because they're like, hey, there's concrete things, I want to know, I want to know, this is going to be awesome, I, I, I want the details. <laughs> uh, friends, if, if you're afraid of the details, you don't have to be. There's some amazing truths that we can dive into, uh, concrete realities. It isn't just some spiritual, ethereal existence, us floating on clouds and staring at Jesus like moths stare at a bug light. It is a real world. It is physical. People will live and eat and drink and play and work without the curse of sin. It is beautiful. I think the reason why some of us are so consumed with this life is because we're not enthralled with the next. How many of you, before you were ever converted, or maybe when you were a kid, were like, I don't want Jesus to come back until I get married. Anybody? I was the only one? Okay, there's eight people in here telling the truth. Why why do why do we say that? Because marriage to us seems like real pleasure. It seems like the prospect of something great is tangible. Heaven is like "I I don't know about that. I'm telling you, friends, whatever you think is going to be so great about marriage, heaven's better. The new heavens and the new earth is better. The Christ that rules over marriage. Is the Christ that rules over the new heavens and new earth without the presence of sin. Don't be afraid of the details. In light of that, as we bring the book of Zechariah to a close, it's my hope that we would all be able to find our greatest hope in Christ's coming kingdom and not the current one. Can I give one clarification and then we'll be done? A few months ago, I was preaching, and um, I encouraged people to look less at the news than the good news, and a gentleman followed up with me on that the other day, and he, and he said, hey, um, I, I remember you telling us that, you know, you, you, we shouldn't be, and I think I referenced Fox News in particular. He was like, you told us not to look at Fox News, uh, so what news source do you look to? And I'm like, I, I think you missed actually what I was trying to say. I look at Fox News, too, from time to time. It's not about where you get the news. It's about how often you're looking at it. If your daily habit is to feast on the current realities as opposed to the coming ones, you're going to have a problem. Because when things seem to be going your way, you're going to be great. And when they're not, you're not. My prayer for this church, again, news is just an example. It could be something else. Is that we would be more consumed with the coming kingdom than the current one. And I know the saying, we shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but you know the truth behind that. Those who have done the most earthly good have been the most heavenly minded. Let us be consumed with Christ's coming kingdom. Despite the pressures, the problems, of this day let's bow our heads close our eyes prepare to pray and give us a moment to reflect silence of what our week this week would look like if we were consumed with christ and his kingdom over our own, and then I'll pray. Father, as I reflect on what this week would look like if I was more consumed with your kingdom than the current one, um, I'm stunned at the differences from last week to this. I trust that we all would find hope and encouragement in this surprisingly clear section of Scripture. You reign, you rule, you redeem, and you've called us to play a part or keep us, keep us enamored with Christ, energized by what He has accomplished and will accomplish for those who are struggling in their evangelism, for those who are struggling in their their personal holiness and growth, for those who are struggling to, to honor You in their jobs and in their families. Lord, I just pray that they would just see the good end that You have already orchestrated, that which You have made possible through the piercing of Your Son, and Lord, that they would have hope this week, encouragement this week, that they would obey You and trust You this week, and that You would be honored in this flock, in this congregation. And for those who do not yet know you, for those who have not yet looked upon you in faith, I pray that even today they would come to Christ, You would prize him and treasure him, not only for now, but for the not yet.